Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I think there's quite a lot of fragile egos in politics, actually. I think that's probably half the problem is dealing with the fragile egos. I get that kind of mix of um, lack of confidence and overconfidence, I think, is what makes Westminster the fascinating place that it is. (laughs) Welcome to Imposters, a podcast from The Telegraph. Have you ever had that creeping feeling that you don't belong somewhere? or that you don't deserve your success, even though you know deep down that's not true? Yeah, me too. I'm Claire Cohen, The Telegraph's women's editor and co-founder of our Women Mean Business initiative. In this podcast, we square up to imposter syndrome and demand to know what its deal is. In each episode, I talk to a woman who is out there carving a successful career in a challenging industry, whether that's food or film, fashion, or even flying to the moon. I want to know if they've ever experienced imposter syndrome. If so, what convinced them to keep going anyway? If not, what's their secret? So without further ado, let's meet this week's imposter. My guest today is someone who has been given many labels over the years. Businesswoman, creative, mother, first lady... But since 2017, she's been the driving force behind her own label, the fashion workwear brand Seffin. Oh, and she just so happens to be married to the former Prime Minister. Welcome to Imposters, Samantha Cameron. Morning, Claire. So I noticed that your Wikipedia entry says Samantha Gwendolyn Cameron is a British businesswoman and the wife of David Cameron. How important is it to you that it says businesswoman first? Um... I don't think I've really thought about it. But I I suppose businesswoman first is what it should say, um, because you're not just, you know, appendage to your husband. But on the other hand, we've been together for uh, nearly 25 years. um, And so, and he was Prime Minister, so I suppose to some extent it's inevitable. I think we long for the day when his Wikipedia entry says husband of Samantha Cameron. (laughs) I'm sure it does say that about some women across the world. (laughs) So let's go back to the beginning of I mean, your... I not him, but just husbands in general. <laughs> let's go back to the beginning of your career, because you started working for Smythson in 1996 at just 25. And fashion is a notoriously difficult business to break into. So how did you get your foot in the door and what sort of drive and ambition did you have at that time? 
so the, I started working at Spice in quite an organic way. I actually used to do their windows in my college holidays when I was at art school. So that was how I sort of started out and got to know them. Uh, and then I was, because I studied fine art and was painting, um, but needed to earn money. And so I started um, a little design business on the side, working for various different people, designing packaging and interiors and um, uh, continuing with the shop windows. And they were... Although it had a very big name, it actually was a very small company and there was no design department, no marketing department. And uh, I think Prada had just sort of emerged onto the kind of scene with a kind of huge sort of bang. And and I loved this brand and just felt like it was potentially getting a little left behind. And so I wrote to the boss, who I knew very well, because I'd, you know, worked with her for you know a few years, and said, you know, you, you know, can I come and work for you as I you know, I'll shut my little business and stop painting and can I come and work for you full time um as a product designer initially? Because I, you know, I think it would be great and you need it. And that's how I sort of that's how I sort of she said yes. And that's how I started out with them. That really resonates with me because I kind of got into my business through work experience and then sort of wrote to the top person and said, can I please come in and do more and more? And I look back at that now and just think, God, how I was so pushy when I was a teenager and in my 20s. I can't believe I did that. Do you feel the same? Do you think, do you look back and think, God, that was the confidence of youth to do something like that? Yeah, definitely. And I look at my teenage daughter and it's great, you know, they can be a nightmare, teenage daughters, but it's great on the other hand, having that energy back in the house and that kind of confidence and fearlessness and you sort of forget, it brings it all back because you forget what you were like really when you were, you know, teenagers of 15 and 25. (laughs) (laughs) So you got your first job in Smytheson having been a window dresser. I mean, you were there 14 years. Mm. So did you sort of have that not career plan necessarily, but that drive and ambition to progress there as soon as you started? Yes, definitely. I think, yeah, my mum's an entrepreneur and always had her own businesses. And so I think that is sort of very much, was very much part of my upbringing. Um, So I think uh, definitely wanting to start my own business. And I think what that meant when I was there, whether part of it is organic and that you just want to get the job done and you're really excited about all the stuff that gets done, you work really hard. And so that is the sort of drive and ambition. But I think there was another side of it as well that, that at some point wanted to own my own business. Um, and so then I thought, well, staying at Smyson meant that I wanted to have shares in the business. And then that happened. We did a management buyout. And I think I might have left if that hadn't happened because I think I always had the ambition but to want to really change something and help it grow and then benefit effectively financially from that. Um, and I was thinking about what, you know, why why did that sort of financial side matter so much to me at the time? Because it did. And I think maybe it's something I, my parents got divorced when I was very young, me and my sister, and they then got remarried and had, you know, other families. It was incredibly happy. I got on very well with my step parents. We were always very much part of those families. But I think there is an element where neither of those homes in some senses is entirely yours. And so I think there is that kind of drive maybe to feel like you've really got to kind of make your own way, earn your own living. Uh, And I think my mother came from a similar background and it's probably one of the things that sort of drove her. Her parents, you know, had several marriages between them. And I think it does make you very much feel like you have, you know, you're not on your own, but you do have to, um, you know, make your own way. A core of steel. Yeah. Self-reliance. Self-reliance, yeah. yes, you know, to create that kind of roof over your head. Mm. Well, as well as being a 
core of steel, as we've just learned. I also read somewhere that you previously called yourself a perfectionist, which, I mean, that definitely resonates with me. I don't know about anyone else. And I feel like that's something that's often embedded in you at a really young age, I think from my earliest days at school, for sure. And I wondered if, where you became a perfectionist in your life. I don't think I was as a child, weirdly. I think I was kind of very messy and sort of quite lazy, probably. But I think it's, for me, it's a lot to do with being a designer and a businesswoman. I think if you are a designer and a businesswoman, you're always trying to make things perform better, look better. And so I think it's, I think it's that that makes me a perfectionist. It's always thinking, how can I, you know, how can we do this better? How can I do this better? Does that perfectionism mean that you have an inner critic running through your head? And if so, what does that sound like? I think I'm lucky in that I don't think I do particularly. I come from a family of very confident women. And I think that I always get very stuck into things. So you're so busy trying to get to the next stage that you're not really analysing too much where you are in that moment. But I think that there are there definitely periods in my life where I felt that I wasn't doing the job very well. Um, and maybe that's your job of being a mother or your job at work. But I wouldn't say that it was something that I constantly had. I'm lucky that it's not something that I constantly have. Are you able to tell us about my head. one of those times when you felt like you weren't quite nailing it, shall we say, which we all have? Uh, I think probably when I stood down as creative, I mean, was, there were so many reasons why I stood down as creative director at Smythe. And so it's, but, but one of them, I mean, part of them was kind of family. I want to spend more time with my children. The actual day that I resigned, I had such bad morning sickness. <laughs> I, was oh like, my God, I can't do this for another day. Um, but I think you know, my son had died the previous year and I just felt I hadn't had enough time, you, you know, sort of, I wanted to spend a bit of time kind of dealing with that. But I think also one of the big things was I felt I'd been doing the role for a long time and it'd come to a bit of a dead end. I felt I wasn't doing it as well as I had done previously. I wasn't sure how to take it to the next level. And there was an element of office politics in that as well. It wasn't just that, you know, there were things that I wanted to do, but felt kind of weren't possible in the current structure. But also, yeah, feeling that, um, that maybe for me, it had, you know, doing the job as well as I had done at the purpose, it had come to, I'd hit a bit of a ceiling. So hand in hand with being a perfectionist can often come imposter syndrome, that sort of feeling of being a fraud or that you don't deserve your success. Is that something you've ever experienced either as a young woman climbing the ladder or as a business owner or indeed as the prime minister's wife? Hey, yes. Uh, but I don't think it needs to be n- in not not necessarily in a negative way. I think in order to move forward, you have to kind of push yourself into uncharted territory and test yourself. Mm-hmm. And again, I think I'm lucky. I do come from a family of of you know confident women. My mum's a real fighter. Uh, so, but of course, I think there were definitely moments when um, we were living in Downing Street where it does all feel quite sort of surreal. Um, but not necessarily imposter syndrome, I don't think. Well, how would you describe it, if not that? Well, I suppose if it wasn't you, it might be someone else. And, you know, no one was expecting you to... I mean, it wasn't me going for the role, so you're sort of thrust into it. So it's not like there was an expectation that you were going to be any good at it or or even that you were going to do it at all until the <laughs> moments before it happened, to some extent. Now, I mean, it wasn't your workplace, but you have had 
a unique perspective behind the closed doors of our corridors of power. I mean, I can't imagine there were that many men sat around kind of worrying that they weren't doing things perfectly or that they had imposter syndrome or they didn't deserve to be there, right? I I don't think you can assume that. I think there's quite a lot of fragile egos in politics, actually. I think that's probably half the problem is dealing with the fragile egos. Again, that kind of mix of lack of confidence and overconfidence, I think, is what makes Westminster the fascinating place that it is, (laughs) if I'm being diplomatic. Uh, I'm going to be marginally less diplomatic and just ask you, has, has David ever suffered with imposter syndrome? I don't, I mean, it's just not something I've ever really thought about because it's just not a phrase that I've sort of, is part of my vernacular. Self-doubt, shall we say. Self-doubt. Yes, I'm sure. I mean, I can't think of exact situations, but don't we all in every moment of our lives, you know, life is really kind of challenging. You know, being a parent is challenging, your work is challenging. And of course, you know, when you're prime minister of a country, there, of course, there are going to be moments when you worry about the decisions that you make because they're incredibly complicated. Um, and they're going to affect lots of different people in lots of different ways. So um, I'm sure there were those moments. So you mentioned before um, that you left Smithson after 14 years, mm. by which time you had climbed through the ranks to become a creative director. Um, and it did also just so happen to be your second day in Downing Street. Mm. And there were quite a lot of people at the time who perhaps suggested that you were letting working mothers down. Were you wounded by that? No, not at all. Um, but partly because I think if you are in the public eye, you have to sort of take absolutely no notice of anything people say about you in the press, because if you did, you'd be a kind of wreck, really. And the truth was that I decided to leave the business about five months before, um, before the election campaign had even begun. I'd handed in my notice, but we'd all agreed you know, the press and Westminster beings it is that we didn't want to announce that I was leaving in case people thought that I was assuming that Dave was going to win the election. So it was a very personal decision. It had nothing to do with either the election or whether Dave would or wouldn't be prime minister. It was just something that was very kind of personal to me. And we just tried to manage it in a way in the hope that the press wouldn't sort of spin. But you know, you're never going to get away from some negative connotation. You spoke at the Telegraph's Women Mean Business Summit. And during that, you mentioned how strange it was going into Dowding Street, having given up that role at Smithson. And then there was this role that was sort of undefined with no set obligations, no set direction. How did you make that your own? What path did you decide to go down? I think before we went into Downing Street, I was very nervous about the impact that it would have on my family, on my marriage, um, not especially my career at that stage. Um, And so I think that I decided early on to change as little as possible. So you know, stay. I was still working three days a week at Smythson, so remain doing that. The children stayed in the same schools. We bought all our own furniture from home to make it feel as much like home as possible. And so I think my view was just not to get involved and to keep the rest of our life, our social life, exactly the same as it had been before we went in on the basis that you knew you'd be coming out again at some point rather in the future and to make sure that the life you'd left was still there. I think I had this sort of fear that you'd sort of come out the other side and suddenly have kind of no friends. And I don't know, I realised this sort of worry, you know, friends, no marriage or children being damaged by by it. Um, so I think for me that sort of set a, or immediately kind of set a way in which I wanted to do it kind of my my way so I did the bits that were expected of me but I probably did 
um, sort of, I would say, the minimum. Um, uh, the thing that I did really enjoy was the previous wives, and 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 I continue. I don't know whether it still happens. Did a charity reception every Tuesday night, and you know, particularly having had Ivan, there were a lot of charities around children and disability and health, and that was something that I you know felt really passionately about doing. And they were, it were you met the most amazing people and felt that in a very, in a very easy way for me, you were being quite helpful to the charities. Um, in 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 terms of raising awareness or just being able to invite volunteers, fundraisers into Downing Street to thank them for the work that they were doing. I don't know whether they still do that either, but what advice would you have for any young woman finding herself in that position now? I mean, we've got Carrie Simmons currently um, living with Boris in number 10. What advice would you give her? I think it's got to be yourself and do what makes you feel happy and confident and not get pushed in situations in which you feel uncomfortable. I mean, she, I, I, I don't know Carrie at all, but she obviously worked in politics before she, you know, went to live in Downing Street. So maybe has a kind of different view on how much she wants to get involved. And I think that's fine. I think I, I think every partner, political partner should, you know, do it their own way. I don't think there should be a sort of, sort of set scripts. I think that's why we're lucky in this country. And I think it's something that, you know, Michelle Obama kind of battled with at times. As for her, it was much more, as as first lady and head of state, it was much more prescriptive. But in this country, if you're married to the Prime Minister or the Prime Minister's partner, there is, you know, you can do it whatever way you want. And I think it's just a case of being supportive and, um, you know, making sure that you're not pushed into doing anything that you don't feel comfortable doing. Saying that, I never felt very comfortable getting on the stage at the <laughs> party conference. So there's a yes, sort of balancing being supportive and <laughs> not doing things you don't feel comfortable doing. I know you say you've come, you come from a family of confident women, mm. which is amazing. Um, but I wonder whether you think, uh, perhaps from people you've seen around you, if not yourself, that you think women suffer more with imposter syndrome feelings or lack of self-confidence than men. Yes, I think that's I think that's definitely true. And I, I think imposter syndrome feels like a slightly kind of negative way of looking at it, but I think we are perfectionists. I think we're quite self-aware. I think we're quite self-critical. But that doesn't necessarily necessarily mean in a bad way. My husband always says he loves employing women because they work harder, they are perfectionists. What you get out of them is much better often than men. Um uh, and I think sometimes we are better at our jobs than men because of all those reasons but we're just not very good at then having the sort of ego that goes with it maybe well do you think it's because we know we'll be judged more harshly if we don't do everything perfectly yeah I think there probably is an element of that but I also think it's just how you know how we are as women I think it's just a sort of the natural way that we often approach a situation and I mean I don't think it's the same I mean they're sort of they're they're sort of generalizations aren't they I think it's always risky to make kind of broad generalizations but um where it struck me I think the most was when I was raising money for the business particularly the second fundraise and I got lots of advice from lots of different people and 
definitely we'd be presenting what I thought was a kind of, you know, what was very realistic, probably on the edge of kind of conservative in terms of what we wanted to achieve and the money we wanted to raise. And all the advice that you got from people was you can't, you you can't do that. You know, men would not approach it in that way. So I think it is. And I, I think if you talk to anyone who works with women raising money for businesses, they would say the same thing that you have to be coached into being a bit more sort of male in your whole approach to the situation because I think women are just we've just I'm not saying men are untruthful but I think women are just very pragmatic very truthful very realistic about situations that they're in and men I think in a really positive way sometimes go in with a lot more kind of confidence and fearlessness and uh, and I don't think either of them is bad but you, you know, sometimes you have to kind of, you know, the men should be a bit more like us and we should be a bit more like them. And it's not like either of them, I don't think, is negative. They're both good, but it's just trying to find a balance between the two. When you have had those moments of self-doubt or lack of confidence, what, how have you harnessed them in a positive way? What's your tips for coping with them? I think you've got to take each day at a time. I think that's, you know, when I was starting the business and when Ivan was born, you know, I've been through really kind of challenging periods in my life and you've just got to go, I've got to get through today and, you know, achieve that, you know, set that little goal, achieve that, not look too far ahead if it's a bit scary. Um, uh, and, uh, and just the confidence that you can get by the sort of small achievement that you had that day, get you through the next one. I think that's definitely how I approach starting the business. It's definitely how we approach looking after Ivan. I think sometimes looking at the big picture and worrying too much about the future can be really overwhelming and um, to be avoided. I think that will resonate with a lot of people. It certainly does me. Slowly, slowly. Don't get overwhelmed by the big picture. Yes, yes. Take one day at a time. Well, you were still in Downing Street when you started plotting the idea for Seth in your Mm. business, which I thought was interesting. I mean, how do I put this? Were you bored? No, I wasn't. But I, I think that um, when I became creative consultant at Smythson, I wasn't managing a team anymore. Um, I wasn't managing the budgets anymore, which I'd done previously. And I'd always wanted to start my own business. And so it felt like the kind of perfect opportunity to sort of investigate that as a bit of a kind of project. So it wasn't that I was bored. Um, uh, but it just, I had the time and space to be able to do that. And it's something that I'd always wanted to do since my, well, actually, you know, since I was a teenager. So, um, it felt like a, um, a good opportunity and the first time in, you know, a long time that I'd had the time that I might have a little window of time to do that in. Let's go back to the investors briefly, because you mentioned earlier the differences that can occur Mm. between the way men and women go in and pitch their businesses to potential investors. And I have spoken to so many female entrepreneurs who have been told awful things in those meetings, like, you know, you need a man to help you. (laughs) Or, you know, someone's assumed that they're the tea lady when they've walked in. All the stuff that you think is a cliche, but absolutely is still happening. Has any of that happened to you? I was very lucky in that my initial investor was an old friend of mine who had been an investor in Smythe and so he'd worked with me before and he knew me very well, both as a friend and as a colleague and investor. And he also likes investing in women. He has done very successfully previously, um, not on the high street, Charlotte Tilbury. But it's not something that I've come across. And also I think because I'd had a 
people know if you're going into a meeting, people know who you are um, because of being in Downing Street and they know you've already got a career. So I think I was very lucky in that respect that I've never come across that, but I can totally and utterly imagine that those sort of things happen all of the time. How does it feel going back into number 10 for various fashion events and mm. things that you have been to there? I mean, it's rather strange just for someone like me looking at photos of you standing at the front door, sort of going in as a guest. It must feel really odd to you. I thought the first time I did it that it would feel really odd and kind of strange because it was your home for six years. And strangely, it kind of, it didn't. Uh, and also I didn't spend very much time in the actual Downing Street the sort of public side of the building, because there was a sort of exit that we went out of because the press was standing outside the front door. So we had a kind of back exit we'd go in and out of and then go straight up to the flat. Mainly it was just really exciting to see all the people who work there again, because you do become a bit of a family and they were... They were certainly like a family to Florence who spent much more time sort of front of house than I did when she was a toddler preschool with our nanny Gita kind of wandering around um, everyone's in you know, all the offices and yes, I did biscuits hear that she and didn't She didn't want to move out. I did read somewhere. Yeah, no, she was probably uh, definitely the one who missed Downing Street the most of all of us after we left. So it's just, it's, it's lovely to see people who you, you know, who sort of looked after you and supported you um, in your life there for six years again. You mentioned before the kind of added facet to your own entrepreneurial experience of people knowing who you are when you walk into a room. I mean, how have those um, preconceptions made things harder or easier for you? I think sometimes it can make things a lot easier um, in the sense it does, you know, people always have the first meeting, you know, they tend to be curious, you know, everyone's always curious about meeting her. I mean, I'm definitely a sort of C-list celebrity, but everyone's always quite interested in kind of meeting someone who they, you know, they've seen in the public eye. So I think you, it, it, it makes your life easier in that you get the first meeting, but you won't ever get the second meeting or unless you've impressed them or, you know, somehow convinced them to help you. Negatively, has it been an issue? I tend to be quite a positive person, so I'm not very good at kind of remembering the negatives. I tend to sort of tuck them away in a sort of box in my head and ignore them. But I'm I'm sure there have been moments when, uh, you know, it's definitely been a kind of negative. And there, were, I mean, we initially, you know, we had a couple of people on our Instagram initially who were um, sort of, there was a man who was, always posting very negative things about my husband on I think Instagram. we call them trolls. Trolls, <laughs> trolls, that's what I'm looking for. But I mean, funny enough, I was expecting, and when we launched the business, I was expecting it to be much, much worse from that respect. Um, and actually, we had a couple of trolls initially, but they sort of, you know, gave up bothering. So if the negativity hasn't necessarily come from within... It definitely has come externally, and you mentioned trolling there, but you have had criticism over everything from the price of the clothes to who you've raised money from to hiring interns to people who say you only get publicity because of who you're married to. I mean, do you? how much of that stuff do you read and how much of it do you take to heart? Very little. I think, I mean, I'm from a generation that is, which is, you know, not great when you're running a fashion company because you should be on Instagram all the time taking pictures of yourself promoting a company which I'm really bad at um but I come I'm one quite a private person and two I come from a kind of pre-Instagram age it's just it's not been part of my job to some extent um I think Dave always finds it amazing that I you know hadn't read every newspaper by the time I got into work we're like well you know that's your you need to do that whereas I don't need to do that in my role and I've got you know kids and other stuff I'm doing at work, I don't have the time. And I think having been in Downing Street, you do, 
Definitely. I mean, I would never Google alert myself because you'd learn very quickly that that is just not, <laughs> it's just not a healthy thing to do. I think that I was quite well prepared. And so I don't really take on board. You just have to think all the time, well, I'm doing the best that I can do. You mentioned, Ella, that you're not very good at promoting your own business mm. on social media, but I've seen some lovely photos of you modelling the new collection. Um, and you looked really at ease in front of the camera. And it made me think of times in the past where you've said, that you didn't like being in the spotlight. You mentioned yourself mm. earlier that you hated getting up on stage when mm. you were in number 10. So what what's changed? How come you're so much more relaxed now? I don't think I am. You you're giving my team. <laughs> well, I think you're just trying to do the job well, aren't you? Um, I think if you ask my team, they're constantly sort of um, sorry, bullying me into doing more. And yeah, I'm still not at all comfortable with it, but obviously you try professionally to do the best you can and look as relaxed as I in the photos. Well, you've achieved it. Careful editing, careful <laughs> editing of the photos taken, I think is probably... <laughs> well, I mean, while we're talking about that sort of veneer, I guess, of, of promoting your business, I mean, I read a quote from a friend of yours saying that she always gets very cross when she reads interviews with you because you come across as sort of a quiet, doting wife when actually you're tough and determined. Do you feel like you need to hide that side for some reason? Um, no, I don't think so. I think she's probably referring more to um, interviews that I did when Dave first became Prime Minister. And, and half the time, the questions that they're asking you are about your role as his wife. So, and I think there's, I mean, you know, if I'm being truthful, there's definitely when you when you're in that position and it's not your job, you, you you know, you know that everyone's slightly waiting for you to say something stupid, <laughs> put a foot wrong. So it's kind of best just to slightly kind of hunker down and, you know, not put your head above the parapet. And it's, you know, that's probably quite sad on one level but I just think it's the world that we live in and it wasn't my it wasn't my job you know I wasn't prime minister and I think you know just the way that you know politics and the press operates in this country you've got to be incredibly careful all the time about what you say and do because um I mean, I, I think the press is a sort of hugely beneficial thing in this country. I think it's one of the reasons why we're one of the least corrupt countries in the world. But it does. But, you know, there are upsides and downsides to it. And I think, you know, ultimately, you just have to be very careful that things that you say are not taken out of context and um, read the wrong way. And so I think probably uh, that's why I might have come across in public as not the person that I might be in private. <laughs> there have also been people who have said, oh, how could how could she possibly know what clothes normal urban women want to wear, having had quite a privileged upbringing? How do you respond to that sort of criticism? Well, I went to work every day on a moped with, you know, three children taking them into school, sort of smearing me with toothpaste and sick as I was walking out the door. I mean, I don't think, you know, I was earning good salaries and I had childcare, so of course in a very privileged position but as a kind of working mother my life was no different from any other you know working mothers in terms of that you know I never have time to go to the dry cleaner um one needing to look smart by the time you get into the office which is you know um when you're dealing with small children from the house isn't that easy and I think just you know like with any woman as you you know I think all of us who've gone to the office in the morning have done that thing of going oh my God, I don't think I look good enough. Or I've got a big meeting today and you've run back and kind of changed three times. And 
my reason for starting the business was that however much it shouldn't be, I think as a woman who's trying to kind of balance a family life and a professional life, it is, you know, what you wear and how you look is... Uh, is constantly quite sort of an un, you know underlying stress that you don't really have time to deal with. That is the kind of core of how I approach the collection. Was how can I, how can I make my life easier? And I think for lots of women who start businesses, it's about solving a problem in your own life that you hope applies to lots of other women in the same position. I think the childcare issue will definitely apply to anyone who's listening who's got small children and is struggling to juggle that work and home life i mean how mm. do you think we're any further along in solving that sort of imbalance in the domestic caring duties between men and women husbands and wives yes and no in the sense that i i don't you know i'm lucky that my husband is you know good at childcare he's a brilliant cook um i tend to do the washing up though he's got quite good at that as well recently um uh so i'm lucky that i've got a husband who you know, is quite good at taking on some of those roles and we kind of work quite well as a team in that respect. I do know other people where that's not so much the case. Um, but I think aside from that, I think as the that role of being a mother will, you know, it will never change, you know, will never change. And so it's always going to make, um, you know, working and being a mother difficult. There's no, I don't think there's any kind of perfect solution to that kind of work, life, motherhood balance. And I don't, you know, I used to have to kind of muddle through and anyone who says that there is a, you know, there is a kind of right and a wrong way to do it, I think is is lying. (laughs) So you mentioned your son Ivan earlier Mm. and last year was 10 years Mm. since you sadly lost him. Did you as a family mark that in any way? Yes, we did, but, but yeah, it's not something I really kind of, yeah particularly want to talk about it it's it's such a kind of personal it's such a kind of personal family thing but he um uh, I mean uh, I think pancake day for us is always quite a kind of big deal because he he died the morning after so it's always a way in which we can I think as a family in quite a kind of fun positive way um think about him on a sort of wider level for anyone who's listening who's who's lost someone really close to them how Mm. how has that grief changed in the last decade what kind of lessons might you be able to give to someone else who's going through that I think it's hard I mean I think time is such a great healer in the sense that you think about it less but then I think when you do think about it I don't think that it that the feelings become any less strong but then if they did that would be that in itself would be quite upsetting because you don't want to feel like it's kind of gone away it's a very difficult thing to explain I think unless it's something that you've been through. Thank you for sharing that. I know it's a personal question. And I hadn't realised actually that the name Sefin is an amalgamation of your children's names and your surname. So I guess what I'm wondering now is where you see the business going in the next few years. I think just, I mean, we're, it still feels like we're quite a startup. So I think, you know, getting through the challenges of this year, we're very much working on our sustainability. I think that's a huge issue for fashion. And I think it's a really gritty one because it's, there aren't kind of obvious solutions. There's lots of small things you can do. Uh, I think we've been doing various pop-ups. We'd love to open a permanent store at some point in the next couple of years. So lots lots to do. It's always busy. The sustainability, <laughs> the sustainability question is so interesting. Mm. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up. What, what are you doing to kind of 
push the business towards that? Well, I think you have to look at every aspect of the business, whether it's your packaging or your factories or the fabrics you use, um, uh, your manufacturing processes. I mean, I think, you know, our business is is about, you know, classic, high quality pieces that hopefully will remain in your wardrobe for years to come that are very kind of versatile. So we're not, it's, we're not about kind of throw away, wear once kind of fashion. But I think fabrics is the most tricky part of that. And I think that's what's fantastic about the fact that the consumer is now so engaged with the issue because until we as the um, suppliers go to our factories and say, you know, our clients aren't going to buy this stuff unless you develop good quality recycled polyesters or whatever it might be. Some of the things that we're working, looking, working with at the moment, then, then it's just not going to happen. They're not going to invest in the technology to, to do that. Um, but that is happening, but it will take quite a long time. So I think there is an element where a lot of what we do as fashion companies will be quite s- sort of surface really. But as long as the uh, factories realise that they need to really invest, then it will happen eventually. Do you think the entire fashion industry can ever get over that inherent contradiction of being sustainable, but wanting people to buy stuff? I mean, I think it's the same with anything that you can, cons- you know, to some extent with anything that, that people consume. Um, there's always that kind of, you know, economies and theory need to keep growing. But a lot of that means that that has an impact in other areas. And I think we just have to, I, I think technology can solve so many of these issues. But but until companies uh, feel that they can invest that time and money in the technology that solves the problem. It'll always be a little bit of a vicious circle. But I think, you know, things that is, you know, that's, that's life, that's history. People will want to carry on buying clothes and buying new things. And we just, you know, technology will have to solve those problems. I'm so grateful to Samantha Cameron for being my guest this week and for giving us a different spin on imposter syndrome as something that can be positive and can drive you and doesn't have to get in the way of your success. And in case you heard the clinking of cups, I was lucky enough to record this episode before there were any restrictions in place. And I have to say that Samantha makes a mean coffee. My fellow imposters, I would love to hear your feedback on the podcast. So please do rate and review in Apple Podcasts if you use it. If not, tell a friend about us. That's also really helpful. And remember to follow us on your podcast app so that you get the next episode as soon as it goes live. And just to let you know, I'm not just a podcast host. I'm also a journalist and columnist at The Telegraph. So if you'd like to discover more of my work and that of my colleagues, you can visit telegraph.co.uk forward slash imposters and pick up a free 30-day trial. See you next time. Goodbye. Imposters was produced by Maddie Hickish and Theodora Leloudis. Sound mixing was by Elliot Lampett, and it was a Listen Entertainment production for The Telegraph. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.